Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today is a gentleman who has been on my other talk show, talk about Las Vegas with Ira several times, but today we're going to talk about his passions for magic, his life in magic, and his love of teaching and public speaking. He's Fielding West, award-winning magician. For everything about Fielding West, go to fieldingwest.com and stagecraft101. And Fielding, welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel. Oh, Ira, you look great with all those bagels around your head. <laughs> <laughs> well, people are, are listening to us, so they have no idea what you're talking about, but that's okay. Well, that's, there's, a, there's a screen behind Ira, yes. and it has nothing but bagels on it, and it's making me hungry. But exactly, <laughs> yes. All right, so let's get it right out there. Your grandfather put the magic bug in you, didn't he? Uh, yes, he did, Ira. And it was kind of interesting how it came about. My grandfather noticed that I was not reading. I was in the second or third grade and I wasn't reading. He got me Boy's Life magazine and I'd open it up and look at it and close it. So he was showing me some magic. He realized that there was something wrong with my development. Uh, this is way before anyone, this is back in the 50s. No one knew anything about dyslexia, any learning disabilities, but my grandfather recognized something was not right. So he was trying to find an interest in me, and he got me a stamp collection, which I thought was a lot of fun for about 15 minutes. <laughs> and then after that, I took the stamp collection, and I threw it on the bed, or I threw it at the wall or something, and uh, he gave me a timeout, and he came over, and he sat down with me, and he said, I want to have a serious talk with you. And he says, and I want your ears open. And I th thought, what? I don't know what that means. And he reaches up in my ear, and he pulls out a jelly bean. And he puts that jelly bean on my hand. And, it, and he says, oh, what's this? Oh, see, here's the problem. He reaches in the other ear, pulls out another jelly bean. Now I've got two jelly beans, and I'm just completely blown away. He says, well, I'm going to dig a little deeper. And he reaches up there, and, well, that one seems to be okay. And he goes over here. Oh, there it is. There was two in that one ear. He says, you know, this is called magic. And if you believe in magic, if you really believe, you can pull a jelly bean out of your own ear. And I thought, well, this is kind of dumb. I mean, you know, even for, for a third grader. But he says, but you have to believe. And he says, are you right or left-handed? I said, well, I'm right-handed, Grandpa. And he says, then reach up to your right ear with the total belief that you're going to find a jelly bean and you will perform magic. I reached up into my ear and there was a jelly bean in my ear. And I pulled it out and I cannot begin to tell you that I was literally shaking. I was so completely uh, someone had proved to me that there was a Santa Claus. Someone had proved to me that there are miracles. And that was the first miracle that I experienced. And so now he says, I'm going to, tomorrow I'm going to take you on a secret venture. And I'm going to take you to where all the magic tricks are hidden. No one knows about this. So he blindfolds me. I'm eight, eight years old, nine years old. He's walking me down the sidewalk in Tulare, California. And he literally walks me six blocks to the public uh, library. But I did, of course, I didn't know where I was going. And he gets me in there and I can hear the fans moving the air around. And he says, now, be, when I take this blindfold off, just let your eyes adjust. And he had me standing right in front of 11 magic books in the library. And he pulls this off. And that's the first thing I see is magic, 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 magic. And he says, this is where they hide all the magic secrets. And I said, Grandpa, this is a library. Anybody can come in here and get one of these books and know how these tricks are done. And he said, that's the point. Nobody reads. And that, for some reason, uh, still echoes in my brain. 
every time I think about that moment in my life when that light came on. And so we picked out a book. He says, you learn enough tricks in here to do a little magic show for your grandmother and myself. And we have a big surprise for you on your birthday, August 31st. And I said, okay. So I, every day, all day long, working on magic tricks and showing him. And so we had six or seven magic tricks and he gave me his Masonic fez. And I put that on my grand, my grandmother made me a little cape and he went out to his shop and he, and he made a magic wand. He painted it black with white tips on it. And so he, here I was, you know, being initiated as being a magician and my grandmother had her camera out and she's taking photos of this in the living room. And my little sister was, he said, well, you're going to be his assistant. So when he finishes the trick, you put her over here, then you hand him the next trick. And so my sister was my assistant. She was five years younger and just literally a baby. And so that, that launch, that was the first part, finish this story on my birthday, it took me to Disneyland and in Disneyland was a magic shop. And my grandmother took my brother and I in there and watched the magician perform. And we were both allowed to get one trick. And I got the sponge rabbits called Peter Rabbit Goes to Town. And those were the, that was the first sleight of hand that I learned was how to palm those little sponge rabbits. And, and for, for young hands at that time, that was the perfect thing to get my mind straight and start learning the concept of misdirection. These are things that kids don't know anything about. So here's my little thing I want to add to this. If you want your kid to get into magic, you give them a book. If you give them a DVD or if you give them a box of magic tricks, they will open it up. They will see how, they will see how all the tricks are done. They'll close the lid and they'll junk that and there will be no interest. But you give them a book where they have to use their imagination along with some still drawings and photos, the whole world because this this fills in, your brain fills in the gap. And this coming from someone who actually has produced DVDs, so that's really good advice. Yes, my, my goal is to produce DVDs so that there'll be less competition. <laughs> <laughs> Although your DVDs cleverly look like a book, so they're, that's how they do that. Yes, they do. Did you ever think, I, did you ever think that that impact of your grandfather, because I talk about people with their passions and pursuits and points of view, your passion was ignited by your grandfather, and I'm sure you've had many times sat down with him and told him the impact he had on you. Well, unfortunately, he passed before I had an opportunity to do that. But he did see uh, in the next few years when I started off to college, and I went to say goodbye to him the, the, the last time he was laying up in bed. He had cancer of the prostate, which back in the 70s, there wasn't a whole lot you could they didn't have the techniques for that. And so he was dying a very miserable, very painful death. And I, to distract him, I was standing at the end of his bed and beside him performing feats of miracles, stuff that he couldn't even believe that I had accomplished from the time that he started me at eight years of age to now, uh, here I am, uh, 22, 23 years of age, uh, saying goodbye to him. And I'm doing magic tricks to do that. That's coming full circle, isn't it? That is exactly the definition of full circle. Yeah. Did you think that you could make a career out of magic? No, I absolutely, that's the farthest thing from my mind. What happened was I got an undergraduate degree in Georgia at Valdosta State College in uh, psychology. Then I worked in a psychiatric ward of the South Georgia Medical Center for a year and realized that that was, that was not going to work for me at all. Now I thought, well, I moved to Tallahassee, Florida, 
And some political people wanted me to go to work for them in a lobbying firm, but they wanted me to finish my degree. I think I was a couple of degrees, uh, a couple of hours shy. And I had so many credits that I could, I could, I was pushing for a master's. So uh, I'd gotten a scholarship at Florida A&M and I went over there. And while I was going to school there, I was selling cars during the day, still not thinking that the magic was going to be the deal. And I went to school at night, sold cars during the day. I always had a brand new car I was driving, always had money, cash in my pocket. And my roommates at that time ran a place at Florida State called the Down Under, which was basically a nightclub. Uh, they had people like uh, Dion Domici. They had John Hartman. They had various singers, folk people that would come down and sing their songs. And they had. They said, you've got a car. We've got a magician coming in. Can you pick him up at the Tallahassee airport? And I said, yeah, I just worked down the street from there. I'll be happy to. I said, what's his name? And they said, Steve Martin. And I said, I've never heard of a Steve Martin. And he said, yeah, he's he's uh, from Hollywood or someplace in California, but he's he's doing colleges. And they say that he's got a very funny magic act. And uh, you pick him up and we'll, we'll get you into all of his shows. So I said, OK. So I pick him up, take him to his hotel. Then I go down. He didn't have a dressing room. It was in the back of a, a restaurant type area. And so I, I saw condiment boxes and I stacked them up and put a broom handle across the top and a, a tablecloth. And th there it was. Steve had his own dressing room and he was amazing. <laughs> he was very, very grateful to me. And I watched him do two shows back to back. And that was it for me. I said, I now that the light came on again. The light came on. You know what? My magic is so far superior to this guy but I'm going to have to learn how to be funny because he is hilarious. And so that was this, that was the struggle. And from that point on, I'd moved to Jacksonville, Florida. I wrote a, a Saturday morning kids show. I actually walked into a TV station and said, I want to put this on your, uh, on the air. And at that time, that particular station was a post Newsweek station and a WJXT channel four. And they were looking for children's programming. So the timing could not have been any better. Because all my friends say, you don't walk into TV stations and announce that you want airtime and that you want to be their next star, you know, but I did. And so I was there for two years. Leonard Skinner uh, had come down from the, for the rock band and he put, put a couple of his kids on my Saturday morning kids show. And then they thought it would be funny for me to open for them. Well, I didn't wind up opening for them. I wound up opening for a group called Molly Hatchet, which did not have a label yet, but was sort of being tutored by Ronnie Van Zant and the Leonard Skinner people. And so I opened for Molly Hatchard and there was agents and all kinds of people videotaping and watching me. And they said, Hey, uh, we, this guy would be great. Oh, we, he needs his own band. He said, what else can you do? I said, well, I just finished a hypnosis course. And if you want to see me do hypnosis this weekend, I'll be at such and such a hotel. They came down and saw me do a hip act, and they said, you're doing magic to open a show. Your, your second uh, 45 minutes is going to be a hypnosis show, and then you've got a five, we got you a five-piece band that's going to play 45-minute sets, 15-minute breaks, and I was off to the races, and I did that for almost two years and wound up here in Las Vegas, there's 1980. A, there's a crucial element. We talked in the beginning about magic as that how you developed that passion for it, but equally important from your perspective, I think, Unless I'm wrong and I'm not, and well, 
You never know. <laughs> it could be. But equally important is what makes your magic unique is your sense of humor and the use of comedy. So where did that develop? Was that also traced back to your grandfather or did you develop that later on in life? How did that? That what, was inspired by Steve Martin on the spot. Okay. So I, I had a few silly little things that I would do. I had faces that I would make. I had a, a catchphrase. No, no, no. That, that, that's every time I'd finish a trick and they'd start to applaud. I go, no, 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 no. That's not it. That's, that's not why I came here today. Then I would do another trick and no, nope, no, nope, that's, that's not it. And so I had these little catchphrases, uh, all very, very sophomoric, very new to the business kind of stuff. And uh, as I went along and kept buying more magic tricks and hanging out with the magicians in Jacksonville, Florida, I would pick up an idea from this guy or I'd get a, a, a line from this guy. And, and I was making notes. And finally, I had created the 45-minute the set that I needed to get out there on the road. And I, I had actually done that show Oh, tons of times. And then they turned me loose on the road. Question, though, Fielding, though, I, you're right, because you mentioned earlier about the epiphany you had watching Steve Martin, but clearly you had to have a little bit of a sense of humor to be able to then realize and have that perception and then write for it. That's where I'm, I'm going with it. That was your second point. I was, a, I was a gag guy in, in high school and college. I would play tricks on people. And if I, and if, and everybody eventually they found out it was I was the one messing with them, so some guys thought it was funny, some guys didn't. I got beat up a lot, but I would do. I, I had all kinds of little college thing. When I got to college, it was uh, oh, there was free run. So by the time I got to the seventies, the National Rifle Association, the NRA, put out a bumper sticker that was in old English script that said. I will give up my right to bear arms when they pry my cold, dead fingers from the trigger. Well, I was working for a lobbying firm, and we had a printing division company. So I went to the printing guy, and I said, how many black stick can you recreate this lettering? And he said, oh, yeah, that's such and such. That's such and such a font. I said, okay, this is what I wanted to say. I will give up my right to uh, masturbate when they pry my cold, dead fingers from my little wee-wee. So they printed up about two or 300 of these, and I would go around Tallahassee with my buddies, and every time we saw a pickup truck with a gun rack, and it had that bumper sticker either on the, on the back of the cab or it was on the, t uh, on the back of the truck, we would put our sticker directly over their sticker. So if they walked by, they wouldn't see any, you know, they'd have to stop and read it. And because it was in old English print, you know, you, you didn't pay any attention. One day we're in the Tennessee Avenue, which goes right through uh, east and west, right uh, in front of Florida State University. And there's a fight going on, two, two cars ahead of us. And there's a guy in a pickup truck screaming, waving, making all kinds of nasty gestures with his finger. And there's a bunch of long hairs over there. And they're laughing and screaming and pointing to him. And, he's, and, the, and the guy in the pickup truck, I could see my sticker on the back of his cab. And he's going, it's my right. It's my right. And the more he screamed that, the more, the, the, the more they laughed. And I said, yes, yes. So he wasn't aware that you had put the sticker over the sticker. No, he was not aware. In other words, besides magic and comedy, you're, you're also involved in sabotage. Yes, I was involved in quite a bit of that. <laughs> so what advice do you give kids who want to make magic a profession today? Because you come from a certain period of time 
and you developed in your own way. And clearly, there's many roads to Sears, as they, I'm paraphrasing, all yes. roads lead to Sears or Rome or someplace. At any rate, there's always ways to get there. But you have a unique perspective, the way you developed your act and your career. What advice, if someone came to you, and when I say kids, it doesn't have to be a kid, it could be a teenager or a young adult. What advice, given everything you know now and where technology is and where magic is and where YouTube is and everything else where everybody sort of knows how magic is done, what advice would you give someone who wanted to make magic? I, I always ask a series of questions. What, do you want to be a magician or do you want to be an actor? Do you not understand that a magician is an actor playing the part of a magician? That's number one. Number two, are you prepared to do 1,000 shows before you perform for a paying audience? And that usually that, that weeds them out right there. 1,000 shows because you don't know anything about yourself on stage. Are you prepared to take a speaking course so that you know exactly the timbre, your voice, how you move on stage, your mic technique? Are you, are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to take some dance lessons? Are you willing to keep yourself in shape and work out every day? These are all questions that one has to go through to become a performer. I don't care if you're gonna be the dancer or the actor or what, but you have to have the certain set of skills to make yourself presentable on stage. And that is a sacrifice. It's, a, it's a commitment, to, clearly. Are, it's a major commitment. And are, are you willing to learn these techniques? Because this is what you're going to dedicate the rest of your life doing. And when managers and booking agents and the whatnot see you, they can tell immediately that you have made this sacrifice. They're looking for people that are committed to the arts, period. And if you're not willing to make a commitment to the arts and you just think that you're going to do this as a passing whim, then go buy yourself a little magic set, get yourself a whoopee cushion and uh, hang around at the bar and be the life of the party, okay? I think that defines me, yes, along with the French drop. <laughs> My lack of commitment and <laughs> explain what explain what the French drop is. It's a term. It's okay. This is not anything nasty. This is we're not dropping the French. What we're doing is a technique for, for making a coin disappear, and it's called the French drop. And I do that so unwell that I have been coached by you and by Lance Burton and other magicians, and I on a certain level, and I don't get above it. So I'll stick with that. But well, we're just trying to keep you from exposing any more than you already have. <laughs> but, you know, your one piece of advice, which I thought was significant, but at the same time fatiguing, is to do it 1,000 times on stage, you still have to support yourself because if you're not getting paid, you're willing to get up on stage and perform, but you also have to eat and have a place to okay, stay. Okay, so let me explain what, what this means. So if there's a theme park in your area, like, Magic Mountain, or if there's, you know, Six Flags over whatever state, right? And so you have an opportunity to do six to eight shows per day that are going to be 15 to 20 minutes long because they want to keep, they want to keep rolling the crowd. Then you get a job like that. Uh, you can, you can log in, you can still get, you can make minimal amounts of money. In most cases, they put you up and they feed you. And so you, you are working to get your career together. And by, you know, six shows a day, eight shows a day, you, you can, you can get to that thousand mark in a summertime. Okay. And what I'm talking about is 
we've had people here in Las Vegas, I'm not going to mention any names, but people that have come out here because their parents have a lot of money, bought them a lot of props, a lot of costumes, and they had no business going out onto a stage in front of a what I call a professional audience, the kind of audience that expects a certain level of talent that they paid for. And this is not the place to break into show business. Although many, many, many acts have come and gone from the Las Vegas area with that same thought in mind. Oh, I'll just go make it in Vegas. Then I can put it on my resume. I played Vegas. Same. No, that makes sense. What's more important, and it may be one and the same, but I, I think there's a difference, but I always wanted to ask you this. What's more important, sleight of hand or psychology? Both. The psychology comes from your observation of your audience. People that have never taken a psych course in their life will learn very quickly what the common con man has learned about deceiving people. You can lead people down the with with uh, certain gestures uh, but that's all body and uh, that's the hands that's all done with the eyes the hands and so once you start learning the small slights okay then you uh, then you expand that into oh then that means i can now do a little something a little bit larger now maybe i can even take on one of these illusions one of these big box illusions which requires lighting timing music assistance dance, you know, there's a whole lot of other factors that are involved. But to get to that point, you don't start at that point. You work your way up to that point. So the sleight of hand teaches us a lot about misdirection. And that's why the sleight of hand classes, the, the beginner magic classes, so that you'll understand. Also, you'll learn a certain cadence of speaking to an audience that you've never had before and you have no experience in. They call it patter. A magician's patter is mostly a suggested story or a suggested routine for the particular trick that you're trying to present. Should have some kind of meaning to it. If it doesn't, then you're just up there rereading the patter. But at least you're learning a cadence. And that cadence will show you a timing thing with your hands and your eyes and the way that you're addressing an audience. What's your favorite illusion? Every magician has a different favorite illusion, clearly, because it depends on, your, again, your background, how you came up in the field, what your interests are, etc. What's your favorite illusion, Fielding West? Well, that's kind of a broad question. My favorite <laughs> illusion, not to be flippant about this, is to get paid. <laughs> and, that's that, and sometimes that's an illusion. Okay? <laughs> but my favorite, I had several favorites when I was younger, and I I wasn't as robust as I am now, and I could actually fit through a trap door. I had, several, I had several great, great illusions that I like to do. But I don't know that you'd call it an illusion more than you would call it a magic routine. And that is to work with my little bird, who I've called Bob the Bird for the last 40 years. Obviously, there's been, <laughs> there's been several Bob the Birds. But only one fielding. But only one fielding. And... Uh, I like what I get out of that. Some guys go out and they like to produce five, six birds like my good friend Lance Burton used to do and, and several other great, great magicians that have come down the pike, tearing restored newspapers, things that look impossible that you make look effortlessly. I used to do sword swallowing and I would also do fire eating. But now I bought myself more expensive teeth, so I don't eat fire anymore. <laughs> 
and I've gotten to be bigger that I don't want to stick anything down my throat at my age. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm saving that for the respirator. (laughs) I've saved the best question, I think, for the end. And you'll understand my question in a lot of ways because it has a lot of meaning. And it's, again, not necessarily from your personal experience, although you're more than willing to, to go that way, but can magic help you cope with life and with adversity? Oh, I, uh, many a night that I've been upset, especially since uh, the passing of my wife four years ago, I would find myself uh, rediscovering, I would have DVDs and I would be exploring new magic. <clears throat> and I would lose myself into developing new concepts, new things that I'd never tried before. And just that fascination of renewing what I call renewing my vows in the art. Okay. And so here I would be watching and now I don't, I'm not really a card person. I would learn a couple of card tricks if they had significance to what I was doing. Most cards I would use would be oversized cards so that if I did them in an auditorium or in a, on stage, the audience would be able to see in the back of the room. But, uh, it, it was very reassuring to me that I always had magic to fall back on. I always had a way, a way out. In other words, I'm not going to need any pills for depression because I've already got something that I overcome depression with. And that's the art. That's this thing that brought me uh, the last 47, 48 years of my life professionally. And do you think that that can apply to other magicians and would-be magicians as well? I think that if you find if you find your heart buried deeply in, invested, I should say, in that skill, and some choose dance, some choose uh, music. I can't say enough about the musician. I played drums, which gave me uh, quite a sense of timing. Uh, that was a big help to me. I played drums through college and little rock and roll bands and stuff. But again, here we are taking s- several different skill sets. So my father taught public speaking when he was in the Air Force. And before I would go to school and I'd have to stand up in front of the class and read a report, my father would have me read it to him several times so that none of you don't hold it like that. You read it like this. Now, he didn't realize that I had a learning disability. He just knew that I couldn't read very well. So he showed me how to break it up so that I could re- I, I would read in sections and then I would uh, say something and I would look up at the audience on this side and I'd say something and look over here. Then I'd come back and make a point over here. And so he had me looking uh, like I was a real professional speaker at a very young age. I played the drums, which gave me a sense of timing. And so there was two skills right there that has already started down that path. And the magic was, like I said, didn't come in until 73 when I met Steve Martin. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been award-winning magician Fielding West. For everything about Fielding, go to FieldingWest.com and StageCraft101.com. Fielding, thanks for being on the show. Ira, always a pleasure, and I'm going to go eat a bagel right now. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, and join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.